Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Next week, the teeth of the Russian devils will gnash ever harder and their rabid mouths will foam in uncontrollable frenzy as the world will see a favorite Kremlin propagandist pay for their crimes. And this puppet of Putin is only the first. Russia's war criminal propagandists will all be hunted down and justice will be served. And that was Sarah Ashton Cirillo, Ukrainian government propagandist threatening the assassination of all journalists, Russian and otherwise, sympathetic to Russia. And no, not Ukrainian, but rather a Nevada transgender transplant born Michael John Cirillo, who strangely once ran as a Democrat for the Las Vegas City Council while surreptitiously digging up dirt on her Republican opponent for the FBI, then abruptly dropping out of the race and hence departing for a sudden top position in Ukraine, wearing military uniform there, sporting the codename badge, Blonde. To sort all these cloak-and-dagger details out is former U.S. Marine Brian Berletic speaking to R.T. Saskia Taylor. I think our comments are very representative of the government in Ukraine and, of, of course, uh, all throughout the military, especially the, the hardliners, the uh, literal Nazis, let's be frank. Uh, as far as the, the rest of Ukrainians, I believe they are more or less hostages in this, this situation, this conflict that continues, that is uh, encouraged and perpetuated not only by those in Kiev, but by their sponsors in the West. So uh, it, it is very representative of what Ukraine has become post-2014. I want to also ask you your perspective as an American, an American who's served as well. This is a U.S. national uh, saying things like this. I understand that she obviously feels uh, certain loyalty to Ukraine as well. In America, do you think people are aware that they have uh, compatriots saying stuff like this, or they perhaps just don't care, they agree with her? I, I think it's probably mixed. I believe most Americans are unaware of all of this altogether. I do believe, unfortunately, there are a number of Americans and people across the collective West who believe that if you are a journalist and you are saying things contra to the mainstream narratives of the West, then not only are you a so-called propagandist, but you are a person who deserves to pay for that propaganda. The irony is that a lot of the people on these lists that the Ukrainian government created are saying things that now even the New York Times and the Washington Post are saying. So I wonder if the Ukrainian government are going to put those people on trial as well. Well, as always, Brian, it's really good to get uh, your perspective on this, not just geopolitically, but I know, obviously, since you've been inside uh, the U.S. Army, you've got a, an insight that many people can't provide us with. So many, many thanks for that. That was uh, geopolitical analyst, former U.S. Marine, Brian Belletic. And switching gears from that no laughing matter moment to somewhat comic relief is actor, broadcaster and stand-up comedian Michael Rappaport talking about what he's been up to lately with the Hollywood East and West strikes, his current stand-up tour, and, quote, I wanted to actually be Eddie Murphy. I'm a work in progress. First, Rappaport rapping online from his makeshift home studio while getting into a yelling match with his wife cooking dinner in the kitchen. Then Michael Rappaport. If you hear some some bopping around, some noise in the background. That's because my wife, my beautiful wife, I don't know what she's doing in the kitchen. She likes the kitchen, by the way. You know, some women don't, they're not good at cooking, so they go, I, I don't go in no kitchen. No, bitch, you just can't cook. Hey, I swear to God, I what? told you about the bitch thing. I can't stand it. You do not refer to women as bitches. Looking from the dark ages, and, and like more than just women go in the kitchen. That's what I'm saying, but, 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 Particularly, some of these, these. Watch yourself. Some of these women, young ladies, they're like, I don't go in the kitchen because you can't cook. You can't cook. Now that's fine. My wife has enjoyed cooking before any of these new. Listen. Also, these these new fem movements. You didn't start feminism. Uh, that's not my point. I, that's I didn't come here to discuss any of that. 
Just saying, if you hear like banging and thumping around, it's because my gorgeous wife, who has always enjoyed cooking, she finds it relaxing. You know what I find relaxing? This, screaming and yelling like a lunatic, to each his own. I find screaming and yelling disruption. That's what I find relaxing. My wife likes making stews and soups, okay? That's what she, she finds relaxing. She likes reading, learning, okay? Making a pasta sauce. I find screaming and yelling, that's, that's my safe space. I, I, I've always had a mouth. I've always had opinions. I've always had a lot of energy. I've always asked questions. I've always been sort of, you know, disruptive. I've always naturally went against the grain with, with certain things. And um, I'm also, you know, like to, I, I don't think, you know, like when I, when I take the big swings, you know, a lot of times in the things that I say and the things that I, 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 I you know, do, you know, a lot of times the humor that I'm trying to get across gets missed because people get a, a frustrated with, with uh, the topic. But I, I always try to give a little wink, wink, no matter what it is. Unless it's something very, very, very serious, and, and I don't think that that's, uh, you know, appropriate. But but even in relatively serious things, I I, I like to. There's always a wink, wink in there if, if you pay attention. Well, hello, Michael Rappaport, and welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you having me. Okay, what surprises can you reveal or not about what's in store for audiences with your latest stand-up comedy appearances? Um, surprises, man. That's uh, it got pressure. Um, well, I don't, I, I don't pull any rabbits uh, out of any hat. You know, um, my stand-up is very energetic. It's very personal. Um, you know, I like to talk uh, a lot of trash. I start with myself because I feel like if you're going to give it, you got to be able to uh, take it and give it as, uh, equally. Um, and uh, you know, I talk about everything. I talk about you know being married, being divorced being a parent, uh, you know, some politics, some sports, and, uh, you know, some uh, maybe some real housewives. And in what ways would you say your comedy may be new and different in terms of what you may have been experiencing lately in the world? You know, there's a lot to talk about politically and socially, and I haven't shied away from it. And I definitely, you know, lean into it as an outlet and as a voice. And I think... Uh, you know, I do it in a very surprising way, you know, with everything that's going on politically and socially. And what are the challenges for you of creating comedy out of such a troubled world out there? Well, the challenges for me creating comedy has nothing to do with the world being troubled or, or not troubled. You know, like I just have such respect for the medium and the art form. And, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself and I just want to give people the best show possible every single time I, uh, you know, go on stage, especially uh, at the New York Comedy Club. You know, people have a lot of choices of things to do with themselves. So if you come to see Michael Rappaport, I like to give it, you know, I like to make you uh, make it worth your, your time and your uh, uh, your energy to come see me live. And speaking of the troubled world, have you been involved in the actors' strike? Yeah. I mean, every actor has been involved in the actors' strike and the writers' strike, and it sucks. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. Um, it's concerning. Um, but we got to do what we got to do to get the union back. And what are your thoughts about the strike, the resolutions, and what makes you angriest about what's going on, like the statements by that Disney executive who hoped the strikers would lose their homes. That got Ron Perlman so pissed off. Well, if that actually happened and that person actually happened, you, you could beep this. If, if, that, if that person actually happened, they could go f themselves, and it's a rotten, miserable thing that they could say, and how dare them uh, uh, say that, and, uh, you know, they, they should get whatever karma is coming to them, albeit... I'm not sure if it's true or not true, and because there's no face and, and, and no, and in this day and age, you know, you're able to trace things. I don't know if it's actually true, um, but if somebody was to actually said that, then they should, you know, they should be homeless. Now, you once said, sometimes people think I'm dumber than I am because of the characters that I play, but it takes a genius to play a fool. Please explain. 
Well, I definitely, you know, played characters that, you know, aren't the, the, the sharpest or the swiftest. Um, and I think there's something just about my disposition. There's something about my face. There's something about my New Yorkness that sometimes people think uh, I'm not as smart or as in tuned or as a good listener as I am. So, you know, I'm very aware of uh, the characters that I play. I'm very aware of the, of, of the way I might come off and the way that I present myself because I am in control of the way I present myself. So that's just in reference to that. And how would you compare and contrast your passions for acting on the one hand and the direct connection with audiences with your comedy? Well, being an actor, you know, you're in control of only so much. Um, you know, the editing process is really uh, uh, the, the, the end-all, be-all. Um, I love uh, and adore and I just have such appreciation for everything that I've gotten to do as an actor. Stand-up comedy, you're in control of everything. You're the actor, you're the director, you're the, you know, you're the, the, you're the editor, you're the, you know, you, you're the wardrobe, you do it all. So it's two different things. You know, obviously the immediacy of stand-up comedy brings, um, you know, highs, lows, and surprises, and, and uh, you know, for better or for worse. So they're, they're both gratifying, and they both... Um, you know, really inspire me and, and, and challenge me. And you've said your first influences as an actor were Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. How so? Well, I mean, Robert De Niro is so influential to all actors. His his preciseness, his specificity, speci is that the right word? Specificity? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying, he's so specific with his characters and the details of his characters, um, and Christopher Walken, you know, the fluidness, the, um, he's like a, a, a musician, like an improv musician, the way he, you know, speaks and the, 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 the tonality and the intonation that he brings, he's like sort of makes up his own sort of, you know, inflections. And, you know, I think he ignores periods and commas and, uh, it's, it's um, you know, he's just one of the best and one of the most entertaining and consistent actors as well. And you once said that as a youth, you had a fascination with Eddie Murphy and dressing up like him. What can you say about that? Well, I, Eddie Murphy was my first, um, you know, inspiration. And, you know, I just loved him and I wanted, to, I didn't necessarily want to do what he did. I wanted to actually be Eddie Murphy. So I would walk around in a white leather jacket with no shirt on as a seventh grader, which was just, <laughs> when you look back at it, it's totally insane. But, you know, he meant so much to me and does mean so much to me. And when Michael Rappaport looks in the mirror, what does he see? When Michael Rappaport looks in the mirror, he sees um, someone who doesn't take himself that seriously, who is continuing to be uh, on the quest to become a better person, uh, a better artist, and just a better Better, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm a work in progress. And any last word about your stand-up comedy appearances coming up to share with our listeners? Um, I can't wait to see everybody. I'm looking forward to a great weekend of shows and uh, come out and, uh, you know, we're going to have a good time. And do you feel your comedy has changed since COVID and the period when you weren't performing? Yes. Um, my comedy always changes and, you know, COVID seems to be a, 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 it's not going anywhere. The discussion of COVID isn't going anywhere. So it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, you know, something that's changed and, and, and adds to my show. I think it, it adds a good perspective to my show. Oh, in what way? Just because I speak on it. I make uh, jokes about it, uh, the good, the bad, and everything in between of it. Well, thank you so much, Michael Rappaport, for joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And information about Michael Rappaport's national tour is online at michaelrappaportcomedy.com. And now on Arts Express, something about U.S. power in the world economy and what it has to do with, quote, the mystery of the door marked 641A on 611 Folsom Street at the San Francisco AT&T building.
Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In a geopolitical world where the U.S. is increasingly using every tool of control and coercion it can on other countries, the truth can be deeply hidden. Now in the new book titled Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy, Authors Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman clearly outline the ways in which technological and economic choke points, many on U.S. land, are being weaponized to pressure the world's foremost powers into complying with America's interests. I'm happy to have on the show the authors of Underground Empire, Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman. Hi, Henry. Delighted to be with you. And hi, Abraham. Hi, it's really a pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. The title of your book is Underground Empire. Now, that's not just a metaphorical turn of phrase, is it? No, it is not. What we wanted to do was to show how U.S. power in the world economy is really, uh, it really can be compared to a kind of imperial power and how it's a power that spreads through all of the things that we don't uh, consider really because they seem to us to be underground, the uh, boring systems of telecommunications, of intellectual property, of financial networks that allow us to uh, move money from one place to another, all of this stuff which is part of the warp and woof of our daily lives, but which you don't really think about because it seems very utilitarian, very technical, has in fact become a means through which the US and other states have begun to project power. When you talk about underground, you're not only talking about unknown, but also literally under the ground. We're talking about cables and wires and so on. That's right. I mean, one of the uh, things that's revealed in the Snowden revelations that happened several years ago was the way the National Security Agency was able to access fiber optic cables, submarine cables that literally go through the planet. I mean, we also are focusing on a number of other infrastructures, what we would think of as the pipes of the global economy. Some of them are physical, like the submarine cables. Others are, you know, digital and span the globe. What can you tell us about the door marked 641A at 611 Folsom Street at the San Francisco AT&T building? So this is one of these uh, doors into a secret world that very, very few people uh, knew existed. So what we did in the book is we talked to a telecoms um, a person called Mark Klein. He was one of the people who helped maintain the secret room uh, in a, a telecommunications company, which was effectively where the fiber optic cables that provided uh, phone calls, that provided communications, uh, were effectively hived off and hooked up to a special narrowest machine, which was a machine which was designed effectively to take all of the information from people's phone calls and turn this information into a form which could then be tapped into by the NSA. So just to be clear, you're not talking about one or two criminals being tapped. You're talking about vast streams of data from vast quantities of people. I mean, are you talking hundreds, thousands, millions? There is one example uh, in which uh, apparently the NSA was able to take an entire small country and record all of the phone calls that people made back and forth for a month and then effectively press rewind so that they could see what people had said. The the AT&T Fairview program, that was really telecommunications in terms of phone data. But there's also, of course, as you mentioned, the Internet, which was designed to be a decentralized form of communication. And yet it seems that through these choke points you mentioned that it has become increasingly centralized and under U.S. control. Can you talk about how that happened? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the kind of major discoveries and things that we want to demonstrate in the book is the way we think about globalization really, it's a caricature that often is leading us astray. So that, you know, we hear about decentralized internet or firms on the loose, you know, governments have been neutered. They, they've probably heard of the, the world is flat is often a kind of an image that people have in their mind of how globalization works. And the basic starting point of our book is to say, in many of the most essential global markets, those networks are not flat and decentralized. They're actually quite concentrated. And this is probably something every one of your listeners will quickly realize. You look at your phone, it's either made, you know, powered by Apple or Google, 
You look at the chip inside, it's basically one or two companies, one TSMC from Taiwan. If they make a financial transaction on that phone, it's basically being run by this one communication system called SWIFT that's centered in Belgium. You know, all of these things quickly concentrate because companies ultimately, their, their motive is to dominate markets, not really to have these decentralized uh, systems because that's where they get the, the rents, the, the profit. And so, what, you know, that's the starting point where we argue, look, this isn't a flat world. This is a very concentrated world. And now states are waking up to that, to see these choke points and see that these are not just economic choke points. This isn't just about Jeff Bezos making a lot of money. This is an opportunity for governments. Where I think the real choke points are, the more important choke points, are the uh, businesses themselves. So it is possible, uh, thanks to uh, various legislation that was passed in the wake of September 11th, it is possible, for example, for uh, the uh, U.S. to send a national security letter to a major uh, company such as Microsoft and say, you need to give us all of the information connected to this particular email account, this particular address, this particular person. And these companies, in effect, because we rely on Gmail or on Microsoft or whoever for all of our services, these are probably the more important choke points these days than the uh, purely physical ones. Because it is much, much easier to go to a business which is already probably trying to keep that information in a somewhat organized form for its own purposes than to try to dip a, a cup into a torrent of data and information and hope that you manage to sieve out the right nugget, the right fact, whatever it is that you need to find. Well, switching to more economic-focused matters, can you explain how the U.S. government took the international bank messaging system called SWIFT, which you mentioned before, and used it as a weapon to coerce other companies to do its economic bidding. Sure. So um, this is a company that started in the 1970s. And the basic idea was to kind of provide a secure back-end post office for international banks. So whenever you make a transaction that's over $10,000, SWIFT organizes the messaging behind that. And it has become basically the central post office for global finance. And because of that, a really treasure trove of information about what you know financial transactions are happening in the world. And uh, several people within the Treasury Department came across SWIFT and understood once again that there was a map that they could use of the financial transactions. And they started to uh, demand that SWIFT provide that data to them. For, for several years, it was a secret program until 2006 when the New York Times revealed that it existed. And then it became a much more regularized with some safeguards around it. But it, it's once again this kind of uh, realizing that the, you know, the international markets, they, they don't maybe have this picture that we thought, this flat world, but instead are quite centralized. And then they become uh, this treasure trove of information. So the international banks were dependent on the SWIFT system. So beyond getting private information, didn't the U.S. also use its power to start excluding some countries from the SWIFT system? Yes, the SWIFT system was very important. Also very important was uh, the so-called dollar clearing system. And effectively, if you want to engage in international trade, you're going to find that that money is probably going to touch the US dollar at some point or another, which means that it touches the power of US regulators. It has to go through this uh, system called the dollar clearing system, which US regulators can effectively control. And so the United States was effectively able to prevent any transactions uh, between Iranian banks and any other bank which needed to use US dollars, uh, which effectively meant any other bank that had international pretensions whatsoever. So this really is a extraordinary power that the US has. And has this affected the Chinese and the Russians? Because they were part of the system, weren't they? That's right. I mean, I think with the Russians, what's so fascinating is that for many years, targeting Russian banks and limiting their access to SWIFT had been seen really as an extreme measure, something that would be quite provocative. Uh, But once Russia invaded Ukraine, the US and the European Union, they basically neutralized Uh, central bank holdings that the Russians had that were either in dollars or euros because of the clearing systems that Henry just explained. It took 
all of this power to a whole a whole new level. Um, for the Chinese, I think they are are watching this. Soon after the Iranian sanctions, they they developed their own kind of a swift alternative system. It's still very small and in no way a competitor to SWIFT, but it just demonstrates that they're they're thinking through, they're starting starting to experiment of ways to um, protect themselves. And clearly, the the Russia sanctions I think have uh, sent a wake up call uh, in Beijing that they have to be very concerned about the dollar-denominated reserves that they had and how either the U.S. or Europe could target those. Well, let's turn to intellectual property and manufacturing. The U.S. began to worry because uh, U.S. national security systems depended on just basically one semiconductor manufacturer, TSMC, on Taiwan. So how did that play out? It starts with a story that's about a, a Chinese firm that's called Huawei. And that company is uh, really at the cutting edge of developing the next generation of the internet. Sometimes people call it 5G. And the U.S. was very concerned that basically if Huawei was running this next generation internet, that the Chinese would be able to do to the U.S. and its allies what the Snowden revelations revealed the U.S. had been doing in part to other countries. And so it, it then really went on a, an effort to limit or to prevent Huawei from being the dominant provider, particularly in U.S. allies. And the way it did that was, as you were mentioning, kind of targeting intellectual property. Could you explain the split in the semiconductor industry, how it's divided between designing the chips and the actual manufacturer, and how that provided a choke point for the U.S.? So back 20 or 30 years ago, semiconductors used to be designed and built in the same facilities. But then gradually you began to see more and more specialization happening and companies like TSMC coming to the fore as being the companies that actually built these uh, semiconductors. The problem was, however, that they still needed the intellectual property from uh, U.S. companies, uh, which were actually designing the uh, semiconductors. And so this provided the United States with a means that it could use in order to inf influence the entire semiconductor uh, supply chain. Because if you want to build semiconductors, you simply cannot do it without access to uh, U.S. intellectual property or without using tools that uh, themselves employ U.S. intellectual property. And the U.S. has developed it's a regulatory structure so that either of those exposes you to a U.S. punishment if you behave in ways that go against U.S. national security interests. And hence, uh, the United States has been able effectively to deny China in the recent past access to uh, certain high-end semiconductors. But the lever of coercion in this case is this idea that intellectual property can be denied to a manufacturing firm. And that's, that's relatively new in the arsenal of, of weapons. That's right. So basically, there's a arcane set of regulations, something called the Foreign Direct Product Rule. It says, you know, it's not just that TSMC can't sell American products to China. It's that it can't sell products that have been produced with equipment or with uh, intellectual property that is American. And it's a very new form of this type of, of coercion. Is this same concept of using vulnerable choke points as a weapon and vying for control of these economic networks, is this a part of what we are seeing driving the Ukraine war today? Uh, I think what Russian war in Ukraine has really shown is how Europe has leveraged these new network-based forms of power in order to try to push back. Um, and so the case of the, the Russian central bank reserves, I mean, it's, it's, I can't explain how extraordinary that is for the European Union to do both just in its in its DNA and what it was built for, you know, it was built to promote economic exchange, not to, to limit it. And the extreme measure, you know, this was $300 billion worth of reserves that the, the European Union basically froze because it sits on this kind of type of, of economic choke point. 
this battle for economic and intellectual property choke points, you write, is now at a point not unlike the Cuban Missile Crisis, escalation after escalation. So how do you think it will turn out and what can be done? Well, I would say the thing that we built over the last 30 to 40 years, the tight interconnected markets, you know, they could all start to to break down. And so I think the the thing that we are really uh, struck by is the need to have a, a, a you know three sixty conversation about this to say we we need to map out what is a, like a responsible way to to shepherd the underground empire. We don't think you can put it back in the box. You know, it's it's out there in the world, and so really we need to think about how can we set up guardrails and controls so that it is used in a responsible way. Empires do not last forever. And here, what I think we worry about the most is not that we're going to see a a, a very, very successful pushback by America's enemies. Instead, it's the uh, possibility that if the U.S. continues to do this without really thinking about the longer term consequences and how it is that this might affect the motivations of other countries, of other uh, economic powers, even perhaps of business, that it is going to overreach and it is going to drive uh, these other actors away from it. So I think that this is something that has really been revealed by the uh, Ukraine war. The United States assumed that it was going to get a lot of support going into the war. It discovered that apart from its core allies, other countries were either prepared to sit on the sidelines or in some cases to be skeptical or hostile to the US. So uh, the US needs to uh, gather countries towards it rather than driving uh, them away. The more that the US uses these powers without paying particular attention to other countries, other actors' needs, interests, and wants, Uh, the more likely it is that other countries are going to say to hell with it. We've got the choice between China and the U.S., uh, and China is offering us this nice thing or that nice thing which the U.S. isn't offering us. So if we're going to go with uh, somebody who's going to push us around, maybe we just go with the imperial power that is offering us uh, the better goodies to go along with it. The U.S. does not want to end up in that world, and if it is not careful with its policy, it very plausibly could. Thanks so much, Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman, authors of the fascinating book, Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy, published by Holt. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And coming up next on the show... In 1928, a young Richard Hollingshead was working as a sales manager at his family's auto parts store in Camden, New Jersey. Hollingshead was a movie buff, but he couldn't share his passion with his mother. As the story goes, she was a rather large woman who couldn't fit comfortably into theater seats of the day. So Hollingshead decided to bring the theater to her. His mother sat in the family car on which he placed a projector. From there, he tied two sheets together between two trees and pressed play. The drive-in movie theater was born. Hollingshead was onto something. He combined America's growing reliance on cars and passion for car culture with the growing movie industry. Hi, this is the UK Desk for Arts Express and my name is Brett Gregory. This evening, we're going to be travelling back in time to explore the origins and development of a special place which lies at the very heart of vintage Americana, the drive-in cinema. Our guide on this unique journey will be an honorary visiting fellow from the University of Leicester in the UK and author of a new book called The Drive-In, Outdoor Cinema in 1950s America and the Popular Imagination. Hi. My name is Guy Barefoot. I'm a historian of American cinema, mainly of the 1930s, 40s and 50s, and that has increasingly meant looking at the film programme, where films were shown, who watched them, and sometimes what else audiences did at the cinema. What originally attracted you to the subject of the drive-in cinema? 
I started research for my book, which should be out in December, around five years ago. I was initially interested in the origin of the drive-in's reputation as a passion pit. What soon became clear was that there were two dominant, occasionally overlapping, but largely contradictory views of the drive-in. For some, drive-ins and drive-in movies meant audiences in their teens or just after, and exploitation films, that is, films with sensationalist material or marketing. In the 1950s, from the recollection of fans to overviews of film exhibition, associated it with family visits to the cinema, and tended to say less about the films than that, for instance, there were drive-ins where people could get their laundry done while the movie played. Their laundry? I can't think of a more rebellious act. Interesting though that was, I wanted to know more about where these cinemas were in relation to urban centres, who went to them, what films they showed, or whether it was true that, as the most substantial book on the topic claimed, no one in the 50s or 60s went to the drive-in to see the movie. I can imagine. What about the representation of drive-in cinemas in wider culture, particularly on screen? The drive-in has played a role in Hollywood films, ever since the 1949 film White Heat, when James Cagney's Cody Jarrett evaded the law by turning into Burbank's Sunvow Drive-In. It's also evoked in numerous song lyrics, various novels, and photographs from Robert Fank's mid-1950s Drive-In Movie Detroit to later images of abandoned drive-ins. What's fascinating about these is their differences. Almost from the start, drive-ins had a disruptive or at least disreputable reputation. They've increasingly been viewed with nostalgia, but even that nostalgia has different sides. It can be for an imagined 1950s innocence. Driving scenes in films such as The Lords of Flatbush and Grease were part of a 1970s trend that looked back to the 1950s teenager in different ways. And in the 1970s and 1980s, the drive-in was also becoming increasingly associated with horror and other forms of exploitation cinema. And as others have noted, the subsequent circulation of such films as drive-in movies on DVD or other formats has itself been a form of nostalgia. Drive-in films set in the past also lend themselves to coming-of-age narratives, whether that means children in the 1996 film Frankenstein and Me sneaking into a drive-in screening of Night of the Living Dead, or teenagers meeting at a Cape Cod drive-in in the summer of 1991 in the 2017 film Hot Summer Nights. Drive-ins also feature on-screen as part of contemporary roadside America, the sort of place a car might drive in in 1949 in White Heat or in, say, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot in 1974. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is a great film. Thoroughly enjoyed that when I was a kid. I guess the fact that they've been part of the actual landscape of roadside America and part of the experience of growing up for many people explains their screen presence though that can vary from the opening shot of Midnight Cowboy, which shows the blank screen of an almost empty Texas drive-in in daylight, to the crane shot of the neon-lit drive-in sign in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So when did the first drive-in open in North America? And who were the enterprising architects behind it? The generally accepted starting date of the drive-in was the 6th of June, 1933, when Richard Hollishead Jr. opened his drive-in just outside Camden, New Jersey. There had been outdoor screenings before that date, notably at what were called air domes. There were even occasions when people may have watched films while sitting in their cars. But Hollingshead and his business partner, Willie Warren Smith, were distinctive in taking out a patent for showing films outdoors in front of a series of ramps designed to give the occupants of parked cars an unobstructed view of the screen. Hollingshead argued that that turned the car into a private theatre box, allowing people to talk, eat, smoke, or bring on their noisy children without disrupting others, and that it brought films to people who might not go to an indoor cinema. Genius! What could possibly go wrong? Drive-ins, at least those from the 1950s or earlier, tend to be associated with films that were old, shown in poor quality prints, low budget or not from the Hollywood major studios. Oh. 
the films that they did show were not screened or heard in the best conditions. Sound was a particular problem and only partly improved after the Second World War when drivers introduced individual speakers attached to car windows. Surrounding lights from the sky or neighbouring buildings did not help the clarity of the screen image. It didn't help either if it was raining and mosquitoes were another problem. Mosquitoes? I see. And what else? Drivings were limited by the fact that they could not show films while it was daylight and outside the south by the fact that for much of the year it was too cold to show films at all. But the growth in the number of drive-ins in the late 1940s and the 1950s meant that there were summer periods when more people in the US were watching films outdoors than indoors. While some treated the drive-in business as a gimmick before the Second World War, it had become too big to be dismissed as that after the war. The resilience of popular culture. And the tickets must have been much cheaper than those for indoor cinemas. The admission charge did tend to be relatively low, and many drive-ins let children in for free, to the annoyance of distributors who made their money from taking a percentage of the box office take. In comparison with indoor cinemas, a higher proportion of drive-in takings tended to come from food and drink sales. In the 1950s, most drive-ins also had a children's playground, sometimes elaborate facilities with, for example, a miniature train. In effect, some drive-ins were amusement parks. Fascinating. And what were the type of films screened at these drive-ins in the 1950s? The drive-ins I've looked at from the 1950s tended to have programmes that were similar to neighbouring indoor cinemas. That is, they showed a lot of westerns and other action films, but also films that had won the Oscars that year, um, Disney films, other Hollywood films, and non-Hollywood films with exploitation potential, including the occasional film from overseas. My examination of 1958 box office records for three drive-ins in Little Rock, Arkansas, revealed that the Brigitte Bardot um, film and God Created Woman took the most money, narrowly beating the biblical epic, The Ten Commandments. However, Hoyenkhead's drive-in tended to show films from Poverty Rose Studios, that is, studios that specialised in low-budget genre films, and the odd British film. In some areas, there were drive-ins that showed Spanish-language films. The overall point is that the drive-in programme was broader than has generally been assumed. And while they did not compete with downtown first-run cinemas, over time, more drive-ins showed films at the same time as other cinemas. Interesting. Do you have a specific example? One of the drive-ins I looked at in Phoenix, Arizona, started out in 1951 as the twin open air, with one screen showing westerns and other action films, and what they called a variety programme on the other screen. It was then split into two drive-ins. One was renamed Acres of Fun. By the end of the 1950s, it was screening double bills, such as I Was a Teenage Werewolf and Invasion of the Saucer Men, as well as films from Bambi to Some Like It Hot. The other was renamed The Peso. It showed Spanish-language films, mainly Mexican films. And were there any complaints from local people when these drive-in cinemas suddenly started springing up in their area? The relationship between drive-ins and local communities also varied. If you look at local newspapers, you will certainly come across reports of objections to a proposed drive-in and complaints about behaviour at the drive-in or what was being shown at the drive-in. Exhibitors, however, often did their best to integrate their business into the local community whether by organising children's events or becoming involved in the community in other ways. These days, most people associate 1950s drive-in cinemas with rude and rowdy teenagers. But in historical terms, this isn't strictly true, is it? Throughout the 1950s, exhibitors insisted that their main audience was the family, which generally meant couples with young children. Overall, at least before the 1960s, Teenagers formed a minority of the cinema audience and did not necessarily prefer outdoor to indoor moviegoing. However, they were growing into a significant minority and exhibitors who emphasised the family audience were in part attempting to downplay the reputation the driving had from the beginning as a dating venue or passion pit. So yes, teenagers who had access to a car 
did go to the drive-in and in the second half of the 1950s filmed aimed at teenagers were shown at drive-ins as well as indoor cinemas, though they made up a relatively small part of the programme. And what other types of audience did the exhibitors accommodate? As well as emphasising the family audience, some exhibitors and commentators wrote of the drive-in as a place where different generations and income groups could mix, even that the drive-ins were more welcome into black audiences than other cinemas. If that was true in some places, it was not elsewhere. Into the 1960s, there were drive-ins that segregated black and white audiences, others that excluded black audiences. There were a small number of drive-ins for black audiences. There were ways in which drive-ins were different, but they were part of a nation in which segregation was widespread to the extent that it did not generally need to be explicitly stated. Sobering thoughts. Anyway, I fear the beginning of the end is about to arrive. Published figures suggest the driving capacity and takings fluctuated, but overall were increasing into the 1970s, even though the number of drive-ins had decreased. Drive-ins closed more rapidly in the 1980s. In part, that was because owners of drive-ins built out of town on what were in the 19 or the late 1940s or the 1950s relatively low-cost land could get a quicker return from selling to a late 20th century property developer, particularly when urban expansion meant that the surrounding area was no longer open country. Beyond that, an increasing emphasis on R and in some instance X-rated films was accompanied by a decline in family audience, while over time indoor multiplexes and different video formats for home viewing attracted more of the youth market. It may also be that there were more potential dating venues after the 1950s, while smaller cars with bucket seats did not help those who wanted the driving to live up to its passion pit reputation. Such a shame, the rise of capitalism at the expense of the community. Anyway, thank you so much, Guy, for taking us on such an enlightening journey into the past. I'm sure you've conjured up a lot of strong cinematic memories for many of our listeners. Thank you. And good luck with your book, The Drive-In, Outdoor Cinema in 1950s America and the Popular Imagination, published by Bloomsbury, it says here, in December 2023. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express. And I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with a memory lane excursion revisited by Mitchell Cohen as timely today from long ago. I've been thinking lately about Daniel Ellsberg's oh-so-meaningful life and his recent death. This led me to remember another anti-war hero, also named Dan, Dan Berrigan who died seven years ago. I recorded this from the funeral in May of 2016. I was standing in the back of the jam-packed, magnificent church of St. Francis Xavier on West 16th Street in Manhattan Friday for the funeral and seeing off of liberation theology Catholic priest and anti-war hero Dan Berrigan. As the casket was being carried slowly through the church, the choir and everyone else broke into Schiller's Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth. And then the cheering started and the roars of appreciation for Dan Berrigan and his powerful and meaningful life. church and out into the waiting hearse, people broke the somber protocol and cheered and roared appreciation.
I was in a Catholic high school, and one of my friends dragged me to one of the Friday night talks at the Catholic Worker, and Dan read poetry and railed against war. He helped liberate me from a lot of my Catholic education. <laughs> As the lone bagpiper played and as the hearse began to pull away, hundreds of mourners and celebrators followed the hearse in procession a ways up the block, saying their final goodbyes to Dan Berrigan. From St. Francis Xavier Church, just north of the village, this is Mitchell Cohen for Pacifica Radio in New York. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.